Ephesians chapter 4. Tonight we begin in verse 17. There's an old saying that is often applied to following Jesus. It says, it's not how high you jump, but it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. It's a good saying. It's not how high you jump, but how straight you walk when you hit the ground. I have seen thousands of people in the course of my Christian experience come to faith in Christ, sometimes under very moving circumstances, very emotional, depending on the background, with tears, with even shaking, just the excitement of God invading a life and changing a life. But that first step must be accompanied by several other steps. And if you put all of the steps together, you have a walk. That's the theme of this section of Ephesians. We've looked at the wealth of the believer. Now we look at the walk of the believer, who we are in Christ and what we have, and now what we do with it. We add step after step and have a solid walk in following the Lord. If you think about it, to become a Christian is easy for us. Not for God. He had to give his only begotten son, but he did all the hard work. We must be willing to receive Christ. But then after that, there must be a following of Christ, an obedience to Christ. Or otherwise, all we have to look back to is the raising of the hand or walking forward down an aisle or shedding tears or having an experience. The experience is fine, but we need a walk. It's sort of like marriage. You know, to get married is pretty easy. You plan the event. You invite people to the event. You stand in front of those people. You say words to each other. You have a guy say, I pronounce you husband and wife. You sign a piece of paper. You're married. That's pretty easy to do. But to stay married, to live a married life for the rest of your life, is a little more difficult than the ceremony, wouldn't you say? As one person put it, getting married is easy. Staying married more difficult. Staying happily married for a lifetime should be considered among the arts. We've said vows to the Lord. We've said, I, I give you my life. I surrender all to you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. Those are great words. But we might say, getting saved is easy. Following Christ more difficult. Following Christ for a lifetime is considered among the arts. And so Paul uses the word often to walk. He used it in this chapter. He used it in this book quite frequently. What he does in verse 17 to the end of the chapter where we read tonight is he talks about the old you and the new you. And he describes it in terms of taking off an old garment and casting it aside, getting rid of an old suit of clothes or an old grimy, muddy coat, and putting on something fresh and new. The old is gone out with the old, on with the new is the idea. Monday I was pouring a slab of cement and I thought, you know, wear these shorts, they're, they're not like beat up old shorts, but I'll be careful. By the time I was done, they were irrecoverable. 
They were so stained, they were so blotchy, the socks that I had on, the boots that I wore, the t-shirt, they were just hopeless. How would it be if I ran around all week in those same clothes, went out to a nice dinner, taught in them tonight? Oh, wouldn't that be a sight? No, it's time to get rid of them and put on something new. That's the theme, the old you and the new you. So look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to licentiousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. Stop right there. That's the old you. That's a picture of your old life. Have you ever seen a picture of yourself that you didn't like? And the reason you didn't like it, admit it, it wasn't that flattering. It's a true picture. It wasn't doctored up or distorted, but you didn't like the way it turned out. Oh, the lighting's not right. What's wrong with the film? My nose isn't that big. Is my skin really that blotchy? Oh, I think I need a tan or whatever it might be. It's not a flattering thing to look at the old you. But Paul describes the Gentile world, specifically the unbeliever outside of Jesus Christ, the old Jew, you might say, and compares it with the new you. And that's where verse 20 on down speaks about the new you. Let's look more carefully in the verses we just read at the old you, or the unbelieving world apart from Christ. First of all, it was aimless. Verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the heathen. You might insert that word instead of Gentiles, just to make it more understandable. Heathen, garden variety, pagan, whatever term you want to use, in the futility of their mind. In other words, when you're not in Jesus Christ, when you're just following the ways of the world to gratify the flesh, you're walking aimlessly, fruitlessly, without real purpose or direction. Oh yes, you're busy. You're occupying yourself with activity. But you're not really going anywhere. You're sort of meandering aimlessly through life. That's sort of the idea behind the word in the futility, or literally the emptiness of their mind. The other night on television, might have even been last night, there was a special on a modern practice. And it was a group of people, kids, I would call them, but people from a younger generation who are looking for significance something to distinguish them as other than their predecessors or other people. And so they would practice certain activities, certain piercings, uh, tongue splitting, sort of like a, well, if you can imagine a snake with a forked tongue, splitting the tongue surgically in half so that it would move in two different directions. Even amputating the ends of their fingers, letting it heal and keeping the amputated part in jars looking for 
significance, definition, a sense of purpose. And I looked at that and I thought, how aimless are we becoming? Almost to the point where we are admitting, I have nothing to live for, there is no significance in life, so I am just going to go and do bizarre things that nobody ever thought of because nobody's ever thought of them until now. Isn't that cool? No. Nicholas Cage, the actor, said, I believe there is a hole in the soul of our generation. He said, we have inherited the American dream, but where will we take it? Solomon described it. He searched for meaning in life, and you know the phrase he often used, vanity, vanity, all is vanity and chasing the wind. Very picturesque, is it not? Emptiness, emptiness. I look for meaning in life, and all I grasp is air. It's chasing the wind. And so that describes your old life, aimless. How many people do you know, just think about it in your mind, how many people do you know that are genuinely excited about their life? Genuinely excited about who they are, what job they have, the person they're married to, the direction they're going, genuinely excited about it. Well, I don't know many, but I know some, and I got to tell you, I'm one of them. Life for me is sheer adventure. I don't know what's next. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And I have a sense of direction and purpose. There's no futility. It's not like, what do I have to live for? So, aimless. That's what you were in the past. A second word that would describe the unbelieving world, or you, your old self before you came to Christ, is not just aimless, but look now at verse 18, sightless or blind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart. Blindness. Sightlessness. The J.B. Phillips translation translates that portion of this verse, verse 18, as blindfolded in a world of illusion. It's a great translation. Blindfolded in a world of of illusion. That's the meaning of this. Under, their understanding is dark and they're alienated from the life in God. Now why is that? Why are they blind? There's two reasons. We are sinners by nature and by choice. That is, on one hand, apart from Christ, we lack the capacity to get it, to understand. First Corinthians says, the natural man, the person by nature, apart from Christ, the supernatural person, the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So an unbeliever lacks the capacity on his own to get it, to understand. Have you ever shared with a person and you talk to them and they listen to you and they may even uh, listen carefully, but you walk away saying, they didn't get it. Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? Why isn't there a real thirst and hunger spiritually? Well, it's like trying to describe a symphony or a great album, a great musical thing that you just discovered, a new CD, to somebody who's deaf. 
or to describe a beautiful sunset to somebody who's blind. They lack the capability to get it. But not only that, the text would also imply that there is a willing rejection. Willingly rejecting any notion of the spiritual world, of Christ, of the need for salvation. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 talks about the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness unto him. Oh, the idea of angels and inspiration of the Bible. Life after death is metaphysical hooey to a lot of them. Foolishness. They reject any notion. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their hearts. I was amazed when I first went to college at how many people were antagonistic toward my Christian faith. I thought I'd find a few people who go, oh, that's cool. No, it's not cool. And it wasn't cool in the medical profession that I had chosen to love Jesus Christ. In fact, I had professors go out of their way to have me stand up in front of the class to acknowledge, look, it's one of those born-again Christians who actually believes the Bible is the Word of God. Oh, they got their laughs, but they won't come Judgment Day. There was, an, on a college campus, I read a story of a, a young girl who was a Quaker. She came from a Quaker background, very formal, very simple, and she preached the gospel. After class, at the break, in the corner of the quad area where students and teachers were going back and forth, and one of the professors happened by, listened, knowing that she was a Quaker, knowing that her faith wasn't very sophisticated. And he stopped and he said, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen God? No, sir. Have you ever felt God? No, sir. Have you ever smelled God? No. She's going through the senses of apprehension. No. Well, you've never seen, you've never heard, you've never felt, you've never smelled God. How do you even know there is a God? Simple question. She responded with a simple answer. Sir, hast thou ever seen thy brain? <laughs> Why, no, I haven't. And hast thou ever felt thy brain? No. Well, and hast thou ever smelled thy brain? Well, no, I haven't. Well, how dost thou now that thou even hast a brain? <laughs> I didn't use that one in college. I don't know if it would have gone over my particular college. but You were aimless. You were sightless. And number three, another mark, the old you, shameless in some regards. Look at verse 19. Who, being past feeling, having given themselves over to licentiousness or lustfulness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. Past feeling. One scholar that I read, in his translation of this verse, being past feeling, put it this way who 
having gotten over the pain. Now listen, that's very picturesque. When a person sins, there is a twinge of pain, of guilt. Sometimes it's severe, sometimes it's not. But there's this voice inside that says it's a conscience God has given us that says that was wrong. It's how most of us were raised. You had a value system, probably, that your parents gave you, maybe even a religious one. But when you did something wrong, that little voice inside of conscience said, that was wrong, that was sin. But as you get older, you learn to deal with the voices. You learn how to silence them. You learn how to get past the point of pain, the painful consciousness that pricks you and says it's wrong. The idea of being past feeling is you are now insensate. You are unable to feel the twinge of pain because you have rationalized your sin to the extent that you're shameless. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to licentiousness. Licentiousness, or the idea of sensuality, was the cardinal sin of the ancient Gentile world. It was one of the things the Gentile, unbelieving world was known for. Sensuality, sexual sin, sexual impurity, immorality. Historically, man has had a problem with purity, infidelity, adultery, sexual sin. After all, it made God's top ten list, didn't it? Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's always been a problem. In Old Testament times, there was a practice of the worship of Baal and the counterpart Ashtoreth, where people, in order to worship these two gods, the counterpart gods, would have sexual relations under the groves of fertile trees on high hills, and during the act, worship Baal, worship Ashtoreth, the god and goddess of fertility, saying, even as fertility is taking place in this act, may my family, may my cattle, may my vegetable garden, and all my crops be fruitful. It was something that enticed the children of Israel. Ooh, that's a different way to have church, they thought. It enticed them. Because to worship Yahweh, their God, didn't include that. Some of them thought, we're being cheated. Why can't we be like the rest of the world? Now Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. The background is a Greco-Roman lifestyle. And the Greeks simply saw sex, as you know, as a biological act with no moral significance attached to it at all. It's just something that you have a need for and you get it over with and that part is done, sort of like eating a meal. In Corinth, as well as other cities, there were temples like this. But in Corinth in particular, there was the temple to Aphrodite, or Venus, that housed on staff a thousand priestesses. They were prostitutes. They would go out into the city and solicit men to have sex, take money from them, and that money would be used to upkeep the temple. And so there was a saying going around, not every man can afford a trip to Corinth. That's the licentiousness that marked the unbelieving world. That should not mark the believer. For verse 20 is the breaking point, but you have not so learned Christ. In the Old Testament, let's go back to the time of the Hebrews and the law. What was, do you remember, 
the punishment for sexual immorality, adultery, what was it? Yes, you'd get stoned, and I don't mean, I don't mean get loaded. <laughs> Others would stone you until you die. Can you imagine if that law were in effect in this year of 2003 in the United States of America? There would be piles of rocks absolutely everywhere, wouldn't there be, if that were imposed? One of the modern marks of our culture is an increased push in licentiousness, in sensuality. And you know it's true. The envelope is always pushed on television, in the movies, in the rating system. It is hard to turn on television without being assaulted with it. It was Malcolm Muggeridge that said, sex has become the national pastime of the American public. Last night, I got up. I couldn't sleep. I was going to grab my Bible. I thought, you know, I'll just turn on the news. And as I was just flipping through the channels, I was amazed at how every other channel just had a, the kind of filth that would be outlawed some years ago. So I just turned it off and said, it's not even worth it. Not even worth it. Grabbed my Bible, asked God to cleanse anything I might have seen, and just thought, now this is worth it. It has become so popular. By the way, one out of nine marriages, one out of nine marriages break up. The principal cause is adultery, having affairs. One out of every nine marriages in our country. There's even on the internet an alibi agency that will provide alibis to give your spouse, including they will email or send posted invitations to events that aren't real events. You'll never go to them. But your spouse will think, oh, you have to go to that event. You have to be out of town. It will even be the operator at the hotel. You leave the number. This is where I'm going to be at for this event. And this alibi agency will pick up the call and say, such and such hotel. Oh, let me ring his room. Oh, he's not in. Sorry, we'll try later. He must be over at the meeting. It's a whole business to provide alibis for those committing adultery. And it's a lucrative business. Shamelessness, licentiousness. Well, let, let's look at the new you. This is you after the makeover. Aren't you glad Jesus comes and gives you a makeover? But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, so you're going to get a whole new set of clothes here, a whole makeover. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, by the way, that doesn't mean your father. <laughs> the old man is the old Jew, who you are in Adam before you came to Jesus, how you are by nature before you came to Christ. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. There's three phrases I want you to notice. Verse 22, put off. Verse 24, put on. Verse 25, therefore, putting away. Put on, put off, and put away. 
What are you to put off? You're to put off the old man, which includes the way you thought, the things that you did, the things that you know weren't glorifying to Jesus from your old life. You see, when you come to Christ, there's this thing that is often neglected. When people say, all you got to do is believe. Yes, but part of believing includes this very important element known as repentance. Were you preaching repentance? Absolutely. You know why? Jesus' first message was repent. John the Baptist's first message was repent. And until you have repented, unless you know what you're turning from, you don't know who you're turning to. Well, I've turned to Christ. From what? What have you turned from? The idea of repentance is to turn around. You're walking your own direction, doing your own thing, and God says, turn around, follow me. So it implies leaving something, not just acknowledging God exists, acknowledging God is present, turning from making a decision in my mind that is followed up by my actions, my steps, my walk, that lifestyle of repentance, and I've got to tell you, there are things the Lord is still calling me to repent of. There are attitudes that creep up in my heart from my old flesh that the Lord says, you've got to deal with that. It's going to keep coming back. You better nip that in the bud now and turn from that now. So I see this as a lifestyle, constantly putting off what you know is wrong as the Lord convicts you of it, the old man, who you are in Adam, and that you put on the new man. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, unless you and your sin separate, you and your God will never come together. And you know how it is whenever you decide to obey the lust of the flesh, give in to it, how awful you feel spiritually before God. Like this great separation has taken place. And that's why we need to confess our sins to Him and ask Him to forgive us and walk in the Spirit. Look at verse 23, though. It's all part of that. You put off the old man and be renewed in the spirit of your, what? Mind. Your mind is where the battle is won or lost. Now, men, hear me carefully. Since we're talking about licentiousness or lust, you live in a culture, as I do, where you can be sensually gratified and men are attracted they're, we're visually oriented. Your eyes can look upon images from the moment you get in your car and drive down the road and see bill, billboards to the time you go to the gym and work out to the time you go and watch television and look at commercials. And you have to be careful not to play with those images but to change the channel or turn away from it or turn off the TV or get away from it. Not to entertain it and build up the flesh and let that thing get away from you. The battle is won or lost in the mind. And that's why it talks here, as the Bible often does, about the renewing of the mind. There's an old saying that I've memorized. If you sow a thought, you will reap an action. If you sow a thought, you'll reap an action. You see, you think of it at first. You play with it. You entertain it. Oh, I'd never do it. But eventually, you're not satisfied with just seeing or thinking. You want to act it out in some capacity. It gets a hold of you. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. So the controls are within us. 
we can choose. God has given us that capacity, and by His grace, by His Spirit, we can have victory, if you choose to have it. That's part of the putting off. That's part of the, that's wrong. I'm turning from that. I'm going to be renewed in my mind. I'm going to be careful what I read, what I see, what I listen to. And, verse 24, following the thought, that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. What does 2 Corinthians 5 say? If any man be in Christ, he's a what? New A new creation. Paul said in Romans 6, I have been crucified with Christ. All of that is positional. That happened historically positionally. Now... We have to walk it, step after step after step, applying that truth, not just positionally, but practically, applicationally. And that's the idea of putting on. That's the daily discipline, men and women, young and old, of putting on the new man, the new you, created according to God in, not licentiousness, but notice righteousness and true holiness. So here's the bottom line. When you come to Christ, when you make that step, there must be other steps of obedience and submission to Christ. Somebody once said, if your religion hasn't changed you, then it's time for you to change your religion. And I used to hide behind my religion. I go to church. I'm religious. Didn't change my life. I didn't come to Christ. When you come to Christ as you are, insufficient as you feel, weak as you are indeed, you come as you are and you're accepted in that condition because God loves you the way you are. Tonight, if you're in, embedded in licentiousness and lust, God loves you the way you are. You can come in that filth, in that old garment, the way you are. God doesn't say, clean up your act first, go take a spiritual bath, and then we'll talk. No, come as you are. I love you the way you are. But, but... God loves you too much to leave you the way you are. He'll accept you, but he'll change you. He'll cleanse you. As somebody once said, Jesus cleans all the fish he catches. Right? We're fishers of men. You bring the fish into him, but he cleans the fish. And we put on the new man. Now, the third phrase, and we're going to finish off this chapter in just a few moments is verse 25, not only putting off, putting on, but putting away. Now let me tell you what, what Paul is doing. He's giving us four practical ways in the rest of this chapter to put off the old man and put on the new man. Four practical ways to do that, four areas of our life in which to do it. Number one, look at verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So, put away lying and put on truth. Put away lying and put on truth. I bet a lot of us have lived with what we would call white lies. There was a book out a few years ago where a poll was conducted asking Americans about truth. 90% admitted to lying regularly. 36% said that they lied in such a way that it was hurtful to other people. It was a chapter called American Liars. 
putting it away, getting rid of it, turning from it, letting the Holy Spirit check you on it. Oh, you exaggerated. Ooh, you didn't tell the truth on that one. So that we can walk in the light and be open. So putting away lying, putting on truth. Just in case you think, yeah, that's really cute, Skip, uh, but really not impertinent or important in my life. I'm just going to continue to do what I do. And it's not going to hurt anybody. I'll exaggerate here and there, but it's no big deal. Keep this in mind. Proverbs 6 says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. Now, wouldn't you think that whenever you read something like that, this is something God hates, you're going to like take notice of it and never do that? What does God hate? A lying tongue. A lying tongue and somebody who spreads deceit. The sins of the mouth. Putting away lying. There were a group of boys that were gathered around a dog on a Boston street corner and a minister happened to come by and saw these boys talking. And he said, what are you boys doing? And one little boy looked up at the pastor and said, we're telling lies, sir. And whoever tells the biggest lie wins the dog. It was a stray puppy. And the minister said, why, I never, when I was your age, I never thought of telling a lie. And they looked at each other and they said, he wins the dog. <laughs> Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Isn't that interesting? Be angry, that's a commandment. Be angry. How come you're angry? God told me, be angry. <laughs> but, but watch, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Let me phrase it this way. Put away aggravation. Put on indignation. Let me explain. There is an anger. There is a righteous kind of an anger. Jesus exhibited it when he overturned the tables in the temple and drove out the people who were buying and selling with a whip, saying, You've made my father's house into a place of buying and selling. You've cheapened my father. Now, Jesus wasn't retaliating against personal harm done to him. He was after the glory of his father. You've made my father's house a den of thieves. It's not like, hey, you said something to me that I didn't like. I heard what you call me. I'm going to get this whip. This is righteous anger. No, it's not. That's unrighteous anger. To defend yourself. To manipulate others to protect yourself. But to... Honor and glorify God. That's a righteous anger. And you're commanded to do that, but not aggravation, not to have a personality where you're, you have such a touchy temper. And I've heard all the excuses. Well, it's because I'm hot-blooded. I'm Latino, or I'm German, or I'm Irish, or I'm Scottish, or I'm British, or I'm... <laughs> no, you're temperamental. And that's 90% temper and 10% mental. <laughs> and if it's diffused unrighteously, it's wrong. Put it away. Get rid of it. When I was a kid, I had a bad temper. I mean a bad temper. I kicked indoors. I did wheelies and brodies in my front yard and dug up my parents' grass with my motorcycle. I had all of those fits of rage and anger. And... I could stop, I suppose, and try to psychoanalyze, where did your anger come from? <laughs> Who said that to you when you were a child? But you know what? 
the bottom line is it's sinful, it's wrong. And when I came to Christ, he told me to stop it, to put it away. And if there's going to be any anger at all, it's not something that's been done to me, but as Jesus did to glorify God. So put away anger or aggravation and bring in a righteous indignation. There's a great story about Jonathan Edwards. Have you heard of him? Jonathan Edwards was Princeton University's third president, third president of Princeton, brilliant intellect, one of America's smartest men ever, a devout Christian, a superb evangelist and minister. Jonathan Edwards had a daughter who had a bad temper. Well, along came a young man who said he fell in love with her and asked Jonathan Edwards for her hand in, in marriage. Can I marry your daughter? To which Edwards replied, absolutely not. The young man said, but I love her. May I have your daughter's hand in marriage? No. How come? She's not worthy of you. And the kid said, what? She's a Christian. I'm a Christian. What's the problem? He said, young man, the grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. But that's interesting insight for a father to say to a young suitor. The grace of God can live with some people with whom no one else could ever live. The solution isn't to stay celibate, but to put it away, to get rid of it, to change, to ask God to change that. And if you find it un you're unable to do it on your own, get some help. Get some counseling. Get some accountability. Look at verse 27. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work or labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. So put away stealing. Put on sharing. Don't steal. Stealing has become a problem. Uh, I read a report and I can't cite it exactly, I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was the statement that hotels are having a problem with their clientele stealing stuff from the room. A lot of them take Bibles and <laughs> linens, books. They said one out of every three people that stay in hotels, in, in this chain hotel thing that I read, steal something from the room. If stealing, if thievery was a part of your past life, you have not so learned Christ. Put it away and put on sharing with people. Give stuff away. Be generous. Now let me just suggest to you a few ways that you might not have seen stealing before. Number one, taking items from your office, your place of employment. You rationalize, oh, they have enough pencils. They have enough paper clips. They don't need this desk. <laughs> you see, you start with the pencil. Pretty soon you walk out with the office. Stealing time from an employer. Coming in, if you're on a salary and not a, not a punch clock, coming in late, leaving early. Taking two-hour lunches instead of one. When they told you to take one. Taking longer breaks. Spending longer time just goofing off and talking to people rather than doing the work. Another report that I read 
20% of Americans, or Americans in this poll, admitted to spending 20% of their work time goofing off. 20%, like an hour a day, unproductively. I was looking for a job in Orange County some years ago in the field of radiology, and all the spots were taken. It was tough to get a job. I had just come back from the Middle East. Several were vying for this position in Westminster Community Hospital. I went in, showed them my resume, had a chat with the head guys, and they smiled politely and said, thank you very much for your time. We'll give you a call. Now, I knew what that meant. It meant, hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> so I wasn't content with that. I said, well, do I have the job? And they said, well, we don't know yet. There are several others we want to interview, and we'll give you a call when the time is right. So I stopped. I was about to leave, and I turned around. And I said, let me just tell you something. If you hire me, you will have no better worker in this department than me. I'll work harder. I'll always be on time. I won't leave early, and you'll be able to count on me. And I waited. And he looked at me and he said, you're hired. <laughs> Just like that. Now, that was a great thing to say, but now I've got to walk what I say, right? <laughs> so don't you know it? They watched me like a hawk. Let's see how good this Christian hard worker is. So there's something to put away. Put away stealing. What about making phone calls at work? when you didn't get permission to make long-distance calls, but you're going to call long-distance home, relatives, etc., on the company's penny. That's stealing. Let him that stole steal no more. So put that away. Verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary for edification, that it might impart grace to the hearer. So, Put away corrupt speech, put on kind speech. That's what he's saying. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put away corrupt speech. Now, what is corrupt speech? Yeah, it's sort of hard to define today. At one time, there's no way you could put on American television Ozzy Osbourne, bleeps or no bleeps. You couldn't do it. Wouldn't happen. In 1946, a film came out that was controversial for its language. You know what it was called? It's a Wonderful Life by Jimmy Stewart. Remember It's a Wonderful Life? The script had to be edited. Foul words were taken out. Jerk, lousy, the name of God, dang, impotent, garlic eaters, no joke. I don't know what the reference was specifically to. I couldn't tell you that. I just know what I read. Those were deleted because they were deemed inappropriate for public consumption on, on the screen. Wow. Have things changed or what? The Cleavers don't live here anymore. <laughs> Ozzy and Harriet don't live here anymore. Ozzy Osbourne does, but not Ozzy and Harriet. Oh, it's a whole different world. USA Today conducted a poll 
where they examined two weeks of primetime television, found that the words that used to be deleted because they were considered foul were used in primetime television once every five minutes. So when I say impure speech, we're coming into a relativistic culture to where, oh, well, it's accepted now. Who cares? I can say it. Nobody will care. Yeah, but God does. Whether it's stealing at work or what you say, God is there. A little boy worked in a cloth shop. The boss wasn't there. A man came in to buy several yards of cloth, knowing that his boss wasn't there. He said, young man, why don't you just give me a couple extra yards? Nobody, your boss isn't here. Your master isn't in. Nobody will see you. He said, oh, yes, my master is in. I'm a Christian. He sees. So your old you, your new you with the makeover. You put off, you put on, and you do that by putting away these things and replacing it with other behavior. Not just putting that away, but replacing it with this behavior. And let's finish it off and we'll pray. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, indicating these kinds of words and actions are those things that grieve the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian. What things? Verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, Clamor, evil speaking, should be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. You see verse 31, you see that word clamor? Clamor, I know it's sort of an awkward word, but the meaning of clamor I'll explain. Clamor is something that is responsible for the breakup of friendships. the erosion of marriages, the dissolution of church relationships, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. What is it exactly? Well, I'm going to read something to you and see if you can guess what it is as I read. I'm more deadly than the screaming shell of the cannon. I win without killing. I tear down homes, I break hearts, and I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and I seldom forgive. My name is gossip. That's the idea of the word clamor. And I have seen gossip as one of the principal sins within the body of Christ. Often disguised, it's just a concern that I want to share with everybody I meet. <laughs> In all of the love of Christ I can muster, please, brothers and sisters, zip the lip. There's a lot of things that don't necessarily need to be shared. Keep it inside and pray over it. Let it go. Oh, but have you heard? No, I haven't. I'm prayerfully concerned as well. Would you share it with me? <laughs> Clamor, gossip. I love what the psalmist prayed. Set a guard, O Lord, over my lips. I think that's a great way to end tonight. Let's ask the Lord to do exactly that. As we do, there's a principle you should remember. A closed mouth gathers no feet. <laughs> because things that you say may come back to get you.
And I'll tell you how. When often somebody wants to share a tidbit of gossip with me, and, and I don't, I, I'm not trying to be cute, I'll just say, okay, now that's interesting. Can I quote you on that? Because I need a source. You've given me information. You're the only source that I have, so I'm going to quote you on that. You're the one that brought me. Oh, no, leave me out of this. Then don't come to me with the information, or you'll be quoted. 